Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today, I got Dr. Ethan Becker. He is the co-author of the international best-selling book, Mastering Communication at Work, How to Lead, Manage, and Influence. He is also a second-generation speech coach with the nation's oldest speech coaching firm founded in 1964 called the Speech Improvement Company. He and his team specialize in creating and delivering customized communication training and coaching programs around the world. He can be found at speechimprovement.com. So welcome to the show, man. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Grateful to have you on the show. Um, So... So you said second generation. So does this mean your, did your parents start this company? Yeah, they did. Okay. They did. I, I, in 1964, uh, my, my mother was studying speech pathology and my father was studying rhetoric and public address. And they met in college and they had this idea that if you could coach an executive the way that an athlete was coached, you could really change that, that person's life. So they developed this concept Um, called executive coaching back in the 1960s. And they were focused through the lens of communication. How do you help people learn to talk in their, through their speech more effectively, more comfortably. And uh, thus the title of the company, the name of the company, the speech improvement company. And yeah, we've been doing it now 56 years. We have a whole second generation of speech coaches. There's a whole team of us around the world and we're, we're, coaches by vocation. So we didn't, you know, there's no one here who was maybe in acting and, and then that didn't work out. So they're here. We've all studied speech communication in school. And then we do this now to mostly in the professional environment, business environment. Got it. Yeah. I think it's really important. And, and I'm curious too, what, what are your thoughts on this? I, I kind of feel, and this is definitely true. I mean, like some people it's easier for them than others. So I'm like, like for me, it's like people always say I have kind of the gift of the gab or, or whatever that saying is. So it's, I, I don't, I know that's not exactly what you're like teaching. Yeah. Um, but for me, communication's always been really simple. Um, yeah. But I know there's some people in my life where, you know, to them, it's just like the most difficult thing, but yet, mm-hmm. you know, those people could like, you know, code an app or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so did have you found like, you know, for some people, it's it's just kind of like common sense. And for others, it's just like really difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and when and we often get asked, why is that? Where does that come from? And there yeah. is a lot of there's a lot of research around that. You know, for some folks, the gift of gab, that's great. You, you don't by chance have any roots back in Pennsylvania, do you? Uh, that's where I'm from. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can hear it i can hear it in your accent oh that's awesome but, there but we my, go dude <laughs> my, you know yeah. one of the things that inspired my dad when he talks about the, yeah. the this industry and starting out his mother my grand my grandmother used to say to him you've got the gift of gab <laughs> when he was in high school cool. and so when he got into college he thought well what can i do with that right? What can I, so he started studying because speech communication is a vocation that you can study. So he got into that and, um, you know, and then, you know, brought it into the business world, but you, you can, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of folks who, 
who struggle with communication. It's not natural. I mean, we do it because we don't have a choice. We're born, people start talking with us and we learn to talk. And a lot of our communication is shaped by the way we experience our childhood, um, our, our parenting, television, what we watch on our screens. School has a huge contribution to the way we talk, the way we do. And then the various experiences throughout our lives affect us, not just little kids school, even big kids school, even in colleges and so forth. Uh, early in our careers influence us. So it's, it's all there. And it is a, it's a learned behavior. So just like picking up a sport and learning a, how to kick a ball or use a lacrosse stick or whatever it is, you can learn communication at any age because it's just simply a behavior. It just takes a little practice. So what's kind of the, and this is a big question, so share, share what you can, but yeah. it's like, what's the process? So say somebody comes to you uh, or your company and is like, you know, I, I need help with my speech. Like what are kind of the steps that you walk them through to get them to their desired result? Sure. That's a great question. And it, it depends really on how people approach us. So as a business, as a business, we provide group training and companies and private coaching. So we, and we work with people at all levels. I mean, most of the works in the business world, but we do work with celebrities and, and politicians around the globe. We do it through video conference and stuff. But um, most of the work we do is in the business space. And so when somebody approaches us, we've got to get a sense of who they are. Uh, what do they have already? What do they already do well in the communication that they're doing, whether that's in a group setting or in a private session? And then from there, we say, what's missing based on who they are looking to talk to? Who's their target audience? Are they looking to become, for example, uh, develop a style, let's say, in the business, at, the, at work? Do they want to have more of an executive presence? For, that's a nice buzzword that's around, right, these days. Mm -hmm. So who, are they looking to be more effective? Are they giving a TED Talk? Or are they look, going to a conference? You got to look at what they have internally already. And then who are they talking with? What's the venue they're talking at? From there, we can see what's missing. And, and, and it's not just what's missing. We like to build on strengths. So what are you already doing? You should know that. As speech coaches, we're, we're, we're specialists. So we will hear you, profile you. And then when we tell you you're doing something well, we're not just trying to be nice. We're not just, oh, let's do the sandwich approach and do a pot. We're, 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 you got to know what's working so you can keep doing it. And then what's not working? Okay, let's work on that. Let's fix that. And that can be a combination of teaching, coaching, training. Uh, the most important thing, practice, repetition. And then before you know it, you're, you're doing it with comfort, confidence. It's a part of who you are and how you, how you think and how you talk. So, so it is like very custom to, to the individual. That's what we've found, uh, yep. at least in our team. When we, we get about two or 300 applications for people who want to join us every year uh, as coaches, they're always coming in. And what we're looking for are folks who have studied speech communication at the graduate level or beyond. I mean, for me, I have two doctorates, an MBA and undergrad, all related to speech comm. But the bare minimum we like to see is at least a, a graduate level degree. And the reason, we're not just trying to be vain about it. The reason is that what we have found is that folks who study the vocation develop a wonderful foundation for which they can then learn and develop. And so when we, can, when we meet somebody, you have that level of customization 
skill. So I can hear you, for instance, and listen not only in the mechanics, for example, how you produce the sounds you're making, which is where I was thinking you, there's some Pennsylvania in you here, the mechanics yeah. of speaking, the articulation, clarity, production of sounds, but also the psychology. How are we organizing thoughts to connect with listeners? And what you're doing might be just fine. We, we learned a long time ago, just because the textbook says you must do it like this, that don't make it so. You know, it's what's effective based on who you're talking with. So we, we like to see folks who have that sort of level of education so that we can customize the experience to the individual. We just found that works best than sort of a, you know, sort of a, a, a blanket, one size fits all approach. Yeah, gotcha. So let's, um, let's discuss your book uh, now. So Mastering Communication yeah. at Work. So let's start from the beginning with that. Um, like, uh, tell us about the process of how you wrote the book. This was a fun journey with a lot of, argu- <laughs> lot of arguing. I was like, that normally doesn't start off with the word fun. I like this. <laughs> you know, John, John Workman, uh, I'm often asked, I'm often asked, who do I feel are really great speakers in the world? And some are celebrities and some are not. My, my father's probably one of the best I've seen. Uh, he still does it a little bit, not as much as he used to, because he's, you know, in relaxation and life mode for him, but he yeah. still does do it. Uh, Steve Jobs, good. Bill Clinton. John Wortman is up there. He's one of them. And uh, my wife and I found him by accident, total accident. We were, when our kids were little, we were, we were church shopping, trying to figure out, okay, we got to find a uh, church for the family and, you know, let's go and look around. And a lot, it's hard for me because when I see people giving speeches and presentations, it's not easy for me to turn off. I mean, I, I've been studying this stuff since I was four years old. So when I saw John uh, at, back at that time, he was a pastor. But he also had a leadership company on the side. But I go into the church, and within seconds, I'm blown away. I'm like, he's got it. The guy's got it. And the it, that it, that ability to connect with a group of people instantly. Very diff- it's a skill that we train people to do. And here's a guy who has it in an environment that we need for our family. So I was like, <laughs> great, we like this place. So I got to know John. And I learned about his leadership training that he did outside of his, his uh, job at the time. And we said, look, you, you, you would, would you have an interest in doing a book together? So we, we took about a year uh, to write the book. It was a great collaboration, push and pull. Uh, John was, was outstanding at the organizing of the book. A lot of the content are things, a lot of this stuff are things that I had been training, doing, living with not just me, but my, there's a whole team of us here at the Speech Improvement Company. We discuss these things, we debate them. And so we have a lot of content. John was able to extract it, organize it. And many of the book writing sessions were spent with me and John on maybe five or six hour phone calls. Cause I'd, I'd be, I travel all over the world. I'd be in Malaysia. And I'd be on the phone with John and would be going through a particular chapter. And then he would take those notes and then send it back to me. What do you think about this? And, and it was really a, a, a great experience. The arguing was just fun because it wasn't fun in the moment. But, <laughs> but we're, we're challenging each other. And to me, that's, a, that's really important. It's very easy to come up with a thought of the moment and say, hey, this is good. So let's just say this. That's not good enough. You know, I, in almost every item in the book, now, every item in the book, uh, we would challenge. And I would say, John, I can think of four 
executive clients that I know right now that this, this would not work with. So we either need to be what there's a phrase I like called be purposefully tentative, which is kind of fun, mm. phrase. but you know, either intentionally say, look, this particular technique will work in some cases, or don't, don't teach it because it's going to be confusing. So, and to me, that's what helped the book to become very successful. So yeah, and it, and it took us a year to do one so chapter at a time. So did you guys kind of have, because uh, I think this is essential, whether you're co-authoring or not, what I, what I tell people, especially when it's their first book, like having accountability is just essential because without it, a book for like almost everybody is kind of like this thing that they really want to do, but it's not their main priority, um, which means everything else, you know, comes before that and then they never get it done. So I guess my simple question to you is just like having John, um, you know, there, do, like, did that yeah. make it easier for you? Cause you knew like, okay, I told John I was going to do this. And if you don't, well then John's going to be like, yeah, what the hell, man? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, I talk about this, uh, years ago I was giving a commencement speech and at, to the graduates. And one of the pieces of advice I gave was if you can find a partner, find a partner because you have that accountability. That, that other person pushing you, which makes it helpful. And the publisher was helpful. When we put the proposal out for the book, uh, we sent it out and we had gotten about, I believe it was about 12 responses within the first week, uh, six offers, and then we narrowed it down to four. And we chose McGraw-Hill because mm -hmm. the editor at the time, we felt really understood what we were trying to do. Most of the publishers were focused almost entirely on the marketing that was it. It's like they had never even heard of our company. And they're like, well, do you know this person? Someone I've never heard of. I'm like, they're like the guru in communication. And I'm like, listen, if I've never heard of them, they ain't that much of a guru. <laughs> and I'm like, do you even know who we are? We've been in this 56 years, right? So most of the authors, and I get that, that's the industry of publishing is to make money. But McGraw Hill got that John and I wanted to write a book that would last we weren't looking for a quick fix, boom, bestseller overnight. We wanted a business book that people could sit on their shelves. And when they're in trouble, they pull this off. They're running into somebody who's very defensive. What do I do? Okay, take the book off, skip to that chapter. And oh, right. If I get a delegate or, 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 or motivate somebody on my team to do something, right? How do I frame my conversation? Go to that chapter. So McGraw-Hill was helpful in setting the deadlines, understanding what we were trying to do. And all of that made sort of this perfect storm. Uh, it was push. It was really hard. The hard part was scheduling. It was tough because I'm all over the place. John was busy, but we made it, ha the, the, the accountability, like you just said, made this puppy happen. And yeah, within a year we, we had it written and we were very happy with it. Nice. Okay. So um, now with, the marketing because it is an international best-selling book how did you guys achieve uh those results and then i didn't see when it came out actually uh okay so this is actually like about 10 10 years yeah. old is that right yes okay yeah it came yeah. out in 09 uh, we're actually working on the uh revision this year for its 10-year anniversary anniversary we're a little behind nice. we weren't okay. going to do it and then we just said let's do it so we actually have our our second draft of the revision done and we're getting so that's going to come out probably next year but cool. we okay. we wrote the book it became an international bestseller within the first year and i think a lot of the success was with that had to do with the fact that i already had a lot of clients around the world mm -hmm. 
So for example, it made it very easy when I was going to Malaysia anyway, for instance, uh, to talk with McGraw-Hill and they would say, okay, well, we're going to set you up with our office there. And then we would do big events. And it was, this was really interesting. The difference between inside the United States and outside of the United States, at least in our experience, uh, when I'd go to Malaysia, even within that first year, there'd be three or 400 people showing up to the book event to hear me speak uh, lines around the corner for autographed copies. It was really pretty cool. That's you come awesome. back here in the States and the publisher did nothing. Well, they, they sent out a press release. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I've been told that that is a sign of the times of how publishers are changing. If you're already sort of a household name celebrity, they back you. If you're not, they want you to do it. Now, now we had, we had help anyway, because we already have, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers and so forth. So as a business, so that helped, but that doesn't mean they're all going to buy the book just because I wrote, we've written 16 books as a business here. So people don't buy it just for that reason. Yeah. But I did have a platform already. And the, the publishers do like that. If you have speaking engagements already, they, they, they don't want to do all of the work uh, these days, but outside of the U S it's different because you have a different ethos as the American that's there. So it's a, a bigger attraction. And then here, it's just different. It was funny. So, so a question uh, about Aristotle, because I noticed in the book description here, it says that in, in the book, you teach techniques that start with the essential wisdom of Aristotle. Can you tell us a little more about that? Sure. Aristotle, he was one of the early philosophers that we like to look at in the study of speech communication, because he was trying to think, he was trying to figure out how we think, how do we process when you talk with me, how do I reason and make sense out of what I'm hearing? When I talk with you, how do you reason and make sense out of what you're hearing? So these concepts have not changed in over 2000 years. And I don't mean that in a gimmicky sort of like, hey, here's a little thing. I mean, literally, it's still taught in universities today, but we teach it in the world of business communication. I'll give you an example, simple, simple example. Um, Aristotle talks about how we connect with each other. And he says, people tend to think in one of two different ways. We reason in one of two different ways, either inductive or deductive, inductive or deductive. Now, your listeners may have heard these terms before, but here's what they mean in the world of speech communication. Here's how we use it. If I'm an inductive thinker, that's just how I reason. That means I need to have all the specific background details first and then tell me the point then tell me what you want if i'm a deductive thinker i need you to tell me the point right up front then give me all the background details and this is a really important concept because when these two people meet each other there is a high level of frustration the deductive person listening to an inductive talker go on and on and on. They, they start to have those facial expressions and you, you can't see it because this is audio, but they, you would hear something like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, okay, yeah, yeah, what, what? Get to the point, right? And that frustration breaks the communication. The reverse is true. If I'm an inductive thinker and the deductive guy's talking to me, I sound like this, what? Wait, whoa, 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 slow down a minute. How did you get to the, wait, I don't understand. I don't get, and I get equally frustrated. So this simple concept that's been around a long time is so effective today. 
in, in the formal environment, whether you're selling, whether you're presenting, whether you're just giving feedback, whatever it is, you've got to, there are two things you need to know about this that we have found in SpeechCom. Number one is which way do you tend to lean as the speaker? Do you tend to lean towards the inductive or detective? And number two, what does your listener need you to be? What do they need you to be? That's easy to understand, hard to do. Because the one that we're comfortable with feels right, and the one we're not comfortable with feels wrong. And if you ask me to do it, it's like you're asking me to be fake. You're asking me to not be myself. No, I'm asking you to be skillful at communicating thoughts from your head out loud so another person can hear the thoughts and understand it. Why not do it in a way that maximizes the chance they're going to understand it? Not just what's comfortable for you, but how they can hear. You start to do this and bam, you watch the quality of relationships and communication go way, way up. Now, that's how, no, that's amazing. Okay. Cause I was starting to think about myself that I think, which is logical. I'm, I'm assuming all the listeners are probably wondering which one they are. I think yeah. for me, I'm definitely the deductive one. Um, because what I'll, what I'll do whenever I, whenever it's like a business conversation for me, it's always about the result first. So I'm like, okay, like, you know, what's the result. And then if we, if we're good there, cause to me, this is logical. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying the other way is wrong, but this is just the way my brain works. It's like, if we, cause if we were to go the inductive, I think you called it. And, but yet we don't, we're not clear on the result first, then we could waste a bunch of time going through all the steps and then find out that we're not on the same page of the result anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, it's kind of just like, you know, for it, just with like my company, if an author comes to us and they need help, I'm just like, first question is kind of like, you know, what results are you looking for? If we can help you get there, then let's continue the conversation. If we cannot, well, then there's no point in going through all the steps. Like I'm happy to answer questions, help you, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you need. But if we're not on the same page of where you're trying to go and where we can help you get, then there's no point. Mm-hmm. And that's the way my brain works. So what do you think on that? <laughs> yeah, that, that's nice for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, but I, I guess I can't even comprehend the other side. I like, know, I know. Let, you so know, there's crazy. an interesting interview in, in the book. There's an interview. One of my clients uh, uh, is uh, John Platt. He's the, the chairman of Sony Music. And mm-hmm. when he first came to us, uh, as an executive vice president, this is the the producer who found artists such as Beyonce, Jay-Z, things like that. So when he first came to us, he was looking to move up in his professional career. He was already very successful, very well known, but he was looking to be more in the managerial positions, leadership in the organization. And so he came to study the communication competencies that would help him move up into a president position or CEO position, you know, move up, which he did. This was one of the competencies that he learned. And he talks about it in the book that as he learned how to, if you can follow me here, listen inductively. Mm. Now I say that because you could be a deductive listener, but an inductive talker and the reverse, just to make this more fun. But as John learned how to become more, he strengthened his skill in listening in the inductive. Because see, what made me think of him when you were sharing is John started out as a DJ and he worked his whole way up into now he's the chairman of Sony Music, right? CEO. But he knew, he knew and knows a tremendous amount 
about the music business and artists and talent and all of this stuff, right? So when, when new artists would come to him in his mind, like you said, it was deductive. It was like, okay, what? What do you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me hit because I've done it all. But as he learned how to listen in an inductive way, he said two things happened. Number one, the quality of the relationships he had with people strengthened which makes a lot of things easier in business. Number two, you actually learn some things. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we learn stuff from folks. So, but learning how to listen and talk and these inductive and deductive patterns can be very, very helpful as we navigate our businesses, our personal lives, uh, everywhere that we're trying to communicate. Anywhere we go to talk, this is one of the considerations. And maybe at first it takes, it's a little awkward because you got to practice it, but then eventually it becomes second nature. So I want to talk about too, because uh, I, I noticed that you, in, in the book, you include some interviews. So the, the first one really caught my attention, the White House and, and specifically the Pulitzer Prize winning author, just, you know, based on the show that we're on. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that, that story or that interview? Well, John, John did that one. So he's probably oh, okay. definitely the guy you want to talk to about that. But what we oh, were okay. looking at were the types of things that, um, that she was observing in the White House and the way that they communicated with things. But yeah, I'm, that, I'm probably okay. not going to be too... Uh, too um, oh, no, no worries. Yeah, no, I just saw a Pulitzer Prize and I was like... That oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a good uh, thing. Awesome. And, you know, but, you know, it brings up a good point too, just for those authors or who are looking is... Who, who is going to be in your book? And John and I were both looking through our networks and our contacts. And it, I don't think it, you know, on the one hand you say, okay, who is the most high profile person that I can get? So the book has exposure and that's sort of the marketing side of it. And I, I wouldn't discount that. Uh, but then there was this other factor that John and I talked about is that we, it wasn't just about high profile because there, there are many people that we're connected to or high profile. We also wanted folks that we felt could comfortably talk about that particular topic in communication. It was just a, a good fit. The story there was a good fit. So we had to find that balance. But it definitely uh, helped uh, in writing a book, having folks that are in the book that are of, of note. Not everybody is. Not everybody in the book is sort of uh, famed. And that's okay too, as long as you can explain the scenario. Most of the, uh, most of the use cases that we're using are with fictitious names, just to protect the names of the, of the privacy of the people we talk with. We write the book and then later on you go and change change the names and some of the companies are absolutely the well they're the ones that we name are real and then others it's irrelevant the name of the company you just need to have the scenario of like a product manager or somebody for sure so you got to work that stuff out as an author so do you have like a and it doesn't have to be in the book um but just a favorite kind of story of a client whether you can name them or, or not name them of somebody that just like came to you and the the difference after working with you guys was just dramatic, um, which I'm sure is like uh, occurring, you know, often, but do you have like a favorite one where, you know, I, I don't know, it added a bunch of revenue to their business or their relationships were dramatically different um, or something of the sort one that really rings true for you? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the, it's tough to talk publicly about that just because the nature of our work is very private. Yeah. It happens probably almost all, all the time with the, yeah. who we're working with. And sometimes my, 
what the most rewarding for me is when that what you just described happens with somebody who is not of uh, fame, yeah. but just within their career. And it could be as simple as just getting the promotion. Uh, these kinds of things happen and we see it a lot. A lot of times, for example, uh, somebody might come to us and they're, they're either a mid-level manager or they're not a manager and they'd like to become a manager. They're really, really good in their department. They're probably the celebrity within their department they're, they're, you know, the one everybody goes to, but now they want to be the manager. An opening has happened. They want to move up. There's more pay. There's more prestige, but it's a completely different set of skills being like, uh, take for instance, if you're work, if you're working in uh, the tech support department, you might know everything about the technology, but learning how to manage people is a different skill set. So mm -hmm. we'll work with them on that. And then everything from coaching them to negotiate the job interview within uh, to selling themselves to what are the tools and techniques you actually need to learn and know how to do. You know, management we define as getting things done through others. That's not the same as you doing it yourself. So learning those skills. So when we hear people get the job and even when, and part of that is part of selling themselves is saying, Hey, listen, I don't have all these skills, but I know what I got to learn. And I got some of them, right? That's a very authentic way to, so it's not like, here's the trick, say this and you get promoted. It's, it's <laughs> being honest about it, but knowing what are the things that actually matter. And then throughout that next year or two years or whatever the, the time frame, they develop those skills and they become authentic. And then they move up to the next level and the next level. And a lot of, I mean, we've been doing this for over 50 years. So a lot of these people that are running companies now maybe started out with us and then over the years, they, they just move up either within that company or another one. So it's, it's very rewarding work. What we do is why we do it. It's why we do it. Of course. Yeah, no, if, you, if you're doing it this long, um, you know, it's got to be rewarding. Um, so I want to shift gears on something because I noticed it on your website. And I don't know if it was you or John who did this podcast, but you might know the information. And mm -hmm. just me knowing my audience, I think this is something they'd really be interested in. Um, so on your resources, you have uh, like the art of persuasion and it says the only three ways to convince anybody of anything. Yes. Um, so I, I don't, I know that's, uh, I'm intrigued. So <laughs> it's in the book by the book. Oh, okay. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> it is in the book. I, like, I love that. <laughs> it is in the book. It is okay. in the book, but I'm going to share it anyway. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we, it's more Aristotle. Uh, oh, not okay. everything in the world of communication is Aristotle, but you, we, today we, we got a couple of popular topics that just yeah. happen to have stemmed from there. Uh, the, 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 what Aristotle calls modes of persuasion. There are three of them. And you may have heard these terms, but let's, let's, let's break it down. The first one is the Greek word ethos. And ethos in the study of speech communication is the idea that you will be persuaded through means of one's credibility, the, your ethics, mm. your reputation, it's your ethos. And ethos is a relative thing. So what that means is it depends on who you're talking about, whether you're credible or not, whether you have good ethos or not. Uh, uh, for instance, um, for me as a published author, my ethos is pretty good. Second generation speech coach, international best-selling author, right? I got all these nice credentials here. And at home, when it comes time to paint the walls in the living room, I got fired. 
little bit of paint on the floor. Now I got to pay another guy to do it. I have no ethos, none, right? Ethos is relative. Just because you have it in one area doesn't mean you have it somewhere else. Um, and even what that ethos is means different things to different people. Uh, there are some folks, maybe they, they went to a prestigious university. Maybe they went to Harvard or MIT or UMass or some school that some people will per per perceive as positive. But you got to look at whose perception that is. I know people who will look at you and say, if you went to one of those schools, you're not a fit here. Right? I mean, there's an ethos there. There's a credibility that doesn't always, uh, it's not always the same for everybody. So part of the skill here is to number one, know what your ethos is in the eyes of who you're talking to. You know, and let me just give you some context. You could ask yourself, what's your ethos in the eyes of your family? You know, how do they see you? What makes you a good parent or son or daughter or sibling? That's, it's not always about like where you went to school and what company you work at, what you've accomplished. It's, not, it's just who you are, right? How about in the eyes of your friends or your, your, your colleagues at work? Most relevant to today's conversation in the eyes of your listener, whomever that is, maybe your readers, whoever they are, right? What's, it, what's the ethos to them? Number two, the second question, how will they know it? How will you communicate that you are credible? Now, with your family, you don't have to do it. They know. If you're the kind of person that always puts the dish next to the sink, I guarantee somebody in your house knows that. Mm. <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. your family knows your, your friends know your ethos. Your peers at work, they probably do. Your listeners or readers, well, sometimes we formally do it. Like in a book, it might be on the back cover. We formally say, went to the school, I have written these other books, right? We, we do that. But sometimes it's, you, you, you have nothing. Books with no cover at all. And you read the book and your ethos just comes out in the quality of the writing. Whether it's good or bad writing, hey, listen, that's totally subjective. It depends on who's reading it. One person loves a book, the next one hates the book. So ethos mm -hmm. is a relative thing that we look at. This, does that make sense, that first yeah. one? No, no, it makes a lot of sense because it's, it's um, like with work-related things, it would be completely different to family-related things. Um, and I can relate to you because with work, you know, good ethos. With painting, terrible. <laughs> so I get it. <laughs> I mean, awful. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I had a job I was doing one time. Uh, there was a, a nonprofit here in, in Somerville, and uh, it's called The Future for Young Parents. And these are, this is a program that teenage girls who are really struggling can go to. They usually have children and no family support. They're like 15 years old with a kid and little to no family support. So it's tough kids who have a very tough time, uh, all girls. And they go to this particular program either because a judge is making them or they're just a counselor has guided them there to get help. Well, the director of the program one year came to us and asked if we would donate volunteer time to help. And of course, that's like in the DNA of our company. My parents have always felt what we do should not only be for people who can afford it. So we immediately said, yes, we go over. I, I was there and I had just come from State Street where all the banks were that, that morning. So I'm in my dark gray suit and the tie and all that. I had the wrong ethos. I'm trying to connect with them and I was the wrong age. I was the wrong, I didn't, I didn't they, they couldn't hear me. It didn't work. So then I went back, I asked if I could come back and I go back and I dressed casual. And 
I didn't dress like them. I just was more relaxed. I had jeans and a sport coat. And I said, okay, girls, well, what would you like to focus on? And somebody in the back of the room trying to kind of be a, a wise ass was like, I want to learn how to win a fight with my boyfriend. <laughs> and so I taught them how to win a fight, which was really how to defuse a fight. But, you know, that's a win for my book. So, but then they got into it. They started getting engaged. And from there, we were able to bring the conversation over to uh, job interviewing. I had developed ethos within that 30 minutes. And to date, this is the most difficult place for me as a professional to coach because anytime I go back, it's a completely new group of kids. I haven't been there in a while, but, uh, but boy, when we did that, that was always an eye opener to me that ethos is a relative thing. It depends on who so you, gotta, you really got to ask yourself when you're, if you're going to a book publisher or a friend or a speaking engagement, what's my ethos to this group and how will they know it? Do they read about mm -hmm. it? Do I talk about it? Do I, will they know it anyway? You know, all of that kind of stuff. Got it. No, that makes sense. So that's the first one. The second one is the Greek word pathos, which is the idea that you'll be persuaded through emotion uh, and, you know, excitement, fear some type of an emotional component. And we see this in uh, television commercials and advertising and selling. I mean, it's not it's like it's a big secret, but this is one of the components. Uh, and it, it, it's in us, it's in the way we talk. If you're passionate about something, if you're too passionate about something, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so that can affect your ethos. So they work together, right? Now, if you haven't been moved by credibility or emotion, ethos or pathos, the third one is the Greek word logos, logic. So this is the idea that you will be persuaded through means of logic, statistics, data, you know, things that just makes sense. It just makes sense. So the concepts that Aristotle was saying is that there's ethos, pathos, and logos in everything. It's in the physical space that we are holding meetings. It's in the topic that we're talking about. It's in you. It's in the way that you look and sound when you talk. So the question is not, do I use the ethos thing that Dr. Becker talked about? No, it has nothing to do with me. The question is, what can you do about the fact that it's already there? Can you use it? Can you pay attention to it? For instance, can you match what you say with the way that you're saying it? Because when you can do that, the quality of the messages are really high and people are more likely to get your intended message and not something different. Mm. So that's ethos, pathos, and logos. Yeah, man, that was fire. That was awesome. Um, that was helpful for me as well. Sure. That was really cool. You know, if, uh, just a fun quick note on that, if, if, yeah. if it's okay. Um, we're in an election year. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you can expand your knowledge and learning around ethos, pathos, and logos as you watch the candidates. Part of the game is to make, make my ethos look good and the, my competitor's ethos not look good. Uh, but there's, there's an old saying, nothing succeeds like success, right? So that's an ethos thing. Mm. And you'll see the campaigns all try to talk about how successful they are. Even when it's a complete flop, doesn't matter. Oh, it was so successful. You know, it's just, it's so, it's so funny. Right. It's so funny. No, they do do that. And, the, and what they usually end it with, so they'll be like, I did this, I did this. And then the other candidate failed at this. That's yeah, that's what exactly I, right. Typically, because I've been watching the Democratic debates here and there. We won't yep. get into like, you know, all that. But I yeah, just, yeah. Um, 
but you're right. It, they, it seems to be, it start off with like credibility. And then the next thing is like why the others are not credible. <laughs> yes. So. And with, without getting into any political points of view, yeah. uh, folks can learn, we can deepen our own skill set in communicating. Uh, it's just exaggerated during a presidential campaign. But as you're watching uh, whether it's somebody that you, you like or the person you don't like, as you're watching them, take a look and get a feel for the level of ethos, pathos, and logos in their communication style. And you'll see how when some people, if you have too much pathos, does it help or hurt your ethos? And that's going to change depending on the venue. One of the challenges they have is in a real life environment, live in front of each other, there's a certain pathos. But that doesn't translate very well on television the same way. So it, because then it looks like you have too much, boy, you know, he or she is hyper, right? But when you're there, it's different. So they, they play with these. So as you're watching and, and, and looking, you can sort of explore that. Now, the difference is this. Now, politics, here's where it's not the same. It's not the same. Um, in politics, in, in real life, in real life, we don't often have multi-million dollar campaigns to introduce our ethos to a room before we get there, you know, like in our day-to-day -day life, unless we're already a celebrity. And even that, we don't have control over it, really. I mean, we try to. But in politics, it's especially in a campaign year, there's enormous amounts of money that get people being talked about. So the ethos is trying to be shaped by both sides already. And so anyway, mm. it's, it's interesting stuff. So. No, I find it very interesting as well. Um, so let's do this, man. Honestly, you provided a ton of value. So I want to, like the floor is yours. I know we mentioned the website in the beginning, but you know, what's the best place for people to connect with you social media wise, website and anything else you'd like to share? Yeah. Uh, so I, I like to hang out on LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm there. You can find me, me. I'm not on Twitter. I mean, I'm on Twitter from time to time. I don't, you know, if you want to find me there, you can. Ethan Becker is on Twitter. LinkedIn, you just find Dr. Ethan Becker. Our website, speechimprovement.com is probably the best way to find us. Uh, there's a phone number there, 617-739-3330. Uh, we have an office, so you can always call and me or one of the coaches will get back to you. One of the assistants will set up a call. If we're here, we'll take it. Um, that's 617-739-3330 speechimprovement.com and the book is mastering communication at work how to lead manage and influence perfect man thanks again for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me this was great the authors unite show is sponsored by authorsunite.com your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact